Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. That was a little bit longer pause this time. So, uh, anyways, welcome to the show tonight. We're talking with uh, Eric Blake from the National Hurricane Center. We're going to be talking about hurricane haunting and actually uh, some news coming out from uh, one of the weather conferences out in Breckenridge yesterday about some of the new products the Hurricane Center is going to be using. So, maybe we can talk a little bit about that as well. So, welcome to the show tonight. Uh, as always, this is a live podcast and broadcast, so if you uh, are watching and you want to leave a comment or something like that, make sure you're uh, on Twitter. You can follow us at Carolina WX Group. Uh, you can submit those comments or questions via that way or by our Facebook page. So uh, I know we've already got some people checking in from Florida tonight, so that's pretty cool uh, to see that. And again, if you're listening on the rebroadcast, We'll let um, Eric share his social media account at the end of the show, and if you have any specific questions for him, he uh, you can direct them to uh, to him via Twitter uh, as well. So let's see, anything else to cover? Nope. Uh, I guess we we could briefly talk about the wintry weather that everyone saw um, over the weekend. Uh, everyone who watched our show last night or last week. You were you were alerted about that, so it was pretty cool. I know the most frustrated guy. On our panel, I'm going to pass to him first because he saw absolutely nothing. Even Shay saw snow flurries in Charleston. But James, you live in Charlotte. <laughs> and what did you see? Uh, probably at or just as much snow as, as Shay. That's right. <laughs> just south of uh, the mysterious uh, snow sleet line. That, uh, in, in full disclosure, I'm pretty sure on all of the forecasts going out last week, there was a disclaimer that said, this line is going to screw somebody. And it was me. Uh, so uh, long story short, warm air, cold air, too much warm air in the atmosphere, didn't get enough snow. But that wasn't the only time this week that warm air and cold air screwed me because I have thus learned all about the physics of chimneys now. Did you know that the air can come down the chimney the wrong way and fill your entire house with smoke? Uh-oh. So uh, it's been a nice little refresher uh, in the past week or so on uh, air densities and flows. And um, while the house is small enough that I can build up enough pressure to pump the air back up and out the chimney, I was not able to do that for South Charlotte. So I'm sorry, South Charlotte. I was unable to uh, control uh, that much air. But I was going to say, I did see pictures of your dog enjoying uh the fire there in the fireplace. So yeah, that once, was good once, once we finally, you know, I'm not sure our smoke detectors work. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's comforting. Uh, yeah. But you guys did see some ice, correct? I mean, it's not okay. like you missed totally on the winter weather. We we got ice. I say plenty of ice. Uh, we got a dusting of snow, not enough to hide the blades of grass, uh, but enough to cover the cars. And I will say this. I don't want to name names, and I don't want to embarrass anyone. But as a northerner living in the south, it's always amusing when people try to clean off their cars with, you know, anything but the $1 snow brush you can get at, like, any store. So why you're pouring buckets of antifreeze on your car to clear off the tenth of an inch of fluffy snow that you could essentially just sneeze and it would go away. I don't know. But, no. But it was quite entertaining. And so um, if nothing else during this hour, I would like to issue the following public service announcement to everyone who cares about the paint on their car. Um, don't pour antifreeze all over your car. There are easier ways. Back to you, Scotty. Wow. I don't even know how to follow that. Um, well, what did you clear your car off with? <laughs> 
Um, I had seven to eight inches, so it it was one of the big push brooms. You know, you just had to push it off. So, uh, not anti-freeze. Goodness, yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> well, talking of winter weather uh, here in the Carolinas, uh, we picked up around seven to nine inches of snow here in the foothills. Uh, we were watching that westward track of the heavy band of snow last week, where. Uh, initially, it was going to be in the eastern part of the state and then towards the Charlotte to Raleigh area. And eventually, um, as most of these systems do, it continued to trend a little bit to the north and west. And uh, we found ourselves in the, uh, the big band of um, heavier snow. So uh, st- started around 3 o'clock. We had a little bit of a lull around 5. And then after 6.30, it snowed until 11 o'clock the next morning. So. Uh, pretty good snow here for the, the Western Carolinas, and we are all appreciative of that. Like uh, David said earlier, before the show, you guys didn't hear this, we just went back to school today after snow from last week, so <laughs> uh, we did get to enjoy that. But uh, uh, temperatures are really cold as well. I mean, we were, I think, 89, 90 hours below freezing, so um, uncharacteristic for us because normally we see snow and it kind of melts on the, the next day or the following, uh, two following days after that, so... Cold air stuck around a little bit longer. So another person who was very busy up in the East Tennessee area is Ricky Matthews. And, Ricky, I think you've completed dinner, right? I'm going to toss to you. <laughs> Wednesdays are a little busy. I uh, get off work around 6 and then come home, and then I had some other duties to take care of today. And so uh, it was dinner time at the start of this show. So excuse me while I finish my meal. But we are totally done now and ready to rock and roll, Scotty, after a uh, little bit of a snowy weekend up here, too. We picked up. Well, depending on where you're at in my DMA, anywhere between about one inch up to, we had a report of 14 inches in Carter County. I was unable to verify that one. I'm thinking it was more like around eight, seven-ish, but you know how uh, (laughs) some road crews can be. Yeah, that looks like 14 inches to me, Bob. So uh, I think that's what happened over there with that one. So You you give him a good point. We need to do a show on how to measure the snow. Well, You just, don't stick a, you just don't stick a ruler in the yard and say, oh, look. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, Shay, you got to see some snow as well down there in the low country. How was it? Well, it was very brief. We had mainly a cold rain up until that point. We just we sat uh, right along the coastline. That low really kind of hugged closer uh, than some of the earlier models said. So that's why some – and sea surface temperatures at that time were about 58, almost 59 degrees. So, you know, we had a lot of warming mechanisms in place, warm ground, warm water, warm nose aloft. Uh, so that really kept it more of a rain event all the way up until the very backside of the low, which brought that freezing column across. And I think it was still about 34, 35 degrees when we started seeing a few flurry showers over the Charleston area and just to our south. Well, a little bit north up in Onda, but down towards Beaufort as well. Very briefly lit. I think it was about a 10 or 15 minute event at the most for, for some folks. And then it was over. Uh, we cleared out, and we've been slowly warming back up again. Now our sea surface temperatures, uh, they actually dropped about 51.6 degrees just during that event alone. So that's pretty significant for the coastal shelf waters to drop that many degrees uh, over a two, almost three-day period. Uh, so we're, we're back down to that with warming air. Now we are going to have fogging issues along the coastline. So that's kind of what we're looking at. But at least if you're inland of the coastline behind the barrier islands and uh, – and further spots inland, then you're going to enjoy some really nice, warm, sunny, uh, warm temperatures and sunny conditions over the next couple of days. So, and tell uh, everyone how warm you got today, so we can throw stuff at you. We got well, we got to about 72 inland, maybe 70. 
And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, we're we're getting you know almost spring like temperatures. We I don't think we were supposed to get past about sixty five today, but pleasantly surprised a lot of folks. But um, you know, like I said, fogging ends up being a complication out of that, and uh, also getting later into the week, we could be seeing a little bit more rain. I think th this Bermuda high that's driving this with the southerly winds keeps it really cool on the beaches. So if you're on the beaches, probably see less sunshine, maybe a little bit of fogging, marine layering, cooler temperatures. But then even further west, uh, out in the Midwest, uh, north of Texas, we're looking at a potential ice storm around the other side of this Bermuda high with cooler air mass working down into it. So great for us, but not so great for folks out west right now. Yeah, and speaking of ice... Mr. David Reese, it looks like you may have another battle with that this weekend. Yeah, it's it's going to be fun up here. We're, we picked up between one to three inches of snow right on the forecast from what we had uh, late Wednesday and during the day on Thursday. started after I got home from the gym Friday nights, and then it ended around lunchtime on Saturday, and some schools were still closed today here in Central Virginia, which I found somewhat odd, but it is what it is. Then we could be talking about mid to upper 60s, close to 70 tomorrow, and then thanks in part to good old cold air damming, in other words, CAD, we could be talking about a little bit of sleet and freezing rain early in the day on Saturday. So nothing like going from the mid-20s on Sunday and Monday to the mid to upper 60s, close to 70 on Thursday, and then back close to freezing again by Saturday, all within the span of about five to seven days. Welcome to Central Virginia. So that's been my... Uh, it's been my uh, forecasting week over the past couple of uh, days. And, of course, the wife's birthday is this weekend. I was hoping to do something for it. But if we have any kind of ice, I'm not going to try to get out on the roads. So be smart, Central Virgilians. That's how we say Central Virginians. You know, I, I know, Virgilians. I had a saying I used a lot of, David, uh, that snow isn't dangerous. It's making bad decisions in snow that's dangerous. It's true. It's very true. So, uh, yeah, take that to heart, everybody out there, because uh, we could be talking about a few slick spots from, uh, I'm thinking about Interstate 64 corridor north. It might stink down towards Lynchburg and Roanoke, depending on how strong that CAD is going to be over the weekend. And then to the guy who thinks we're all crazy because we got a little bit of snow, Peter, <laughs> you're kind of used to this, though. So. You people, my God, can't handle anything down there. Uh, yeah, we did get some wintry precipitation over the weekend. Saturday, we did get a nice amount of snow, up to six inches in some spots. And by the coast, we got up to 10 to maybe a foot. So uh, I was kind of a little surprised, though, because uh, we were kind of watching where the uh, back edge was going to go. And if I share the screen here. Uh, you could see how far it went up to. It was Allentown and parts of eastern Pennsylvania even got snow. So it was originally only supposed to go up to maybe Philly or parts of South Jersey, but it went all the way up. So uh, it was a good probably 12 to 13 hour event. And uh, yeah, it worked out uh, kind of on schedule. So that was good. But this, this what happened. When did you get your own radar, Peter? <laughs> I'm not going to let the plane of weather three just slide by like that. We'll talk about that after the show. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's WSV3, anybody? Anybody wants to buy it? Go ahead. So, uh, free plug there. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, this week, 60s, 60s uh, today, tomorrow, and then uh, maybe another snow event on Saturday, but it looks light as of now. 
And then 50s again next week. So that's typical Philly weather for you in January. There you right. go. Riding the roller coaster. So. Of course. Let's get to the tonight's show, and I'm going to give it to Ricky here in just a second. Knowing Ricky Matthews, Ricky and I are pretty good friends. Ricky loves tropical weather, and he loves airplanes. So tonight is going to be like Ricky's greatest show ever. He loves all this stuff. So, Ricky, I'm going to toss it to you so you can bring in our guest and uh, continue the conversation. All right. Thank you, Scotty. Yeah, you pretty much summed it up pretty well. Uh, I'm probably the only one on the panel with a little F-16 and front sitting in front of them as a giant nerd. Uh, but anyway, I digress with that. So let's talk a little bit about the tropics tonight and involve a little bit of aviation as well. Eric, thank you for joining us tonight from a probably rather warm Miami, I imagine. We just missed 80 today. Too bad. <laughs> Such a sad life. You just missed 80. Boy, we, we won't hold that against you. But, uh, you know, it's funny because I was thinking back a year ago, this time almost last year, we were dealing with a tropical cyclone in the Atlantic Basin. And uh, this year, starting off a little bit calmer, at least for the calendar year. For sure, yeah. It, you don't get a January hurricane very often at all. So a, a lot quieter. Some models actually had a nice high over low block. And there's actually some low pressure systems to monitor, but nothing tropical of nature. But Something to still watch. There's still that big block over the Atlantic, just in case something really stupid tries to happen. So, so before we dive into kind of what the hurricane hunters do during hurricane season, what are you guys up to during the the quote unquote off season at the Hurricane Center? Well, I mean, there's really two seasons: there's the, the operation season, and then it's the the postseason wrap up and getting ready for next year. Uh, today. I was part of the, the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Project annual meeting. I had a presentation today. Uh, we have about 50 scientists at the Hurricane Center that are working on HF. Um, and, you know, I still, uh, I still have to finish Tropical Cyclone Reports. Um, Julia uh, and Julia and Payne. So I'm, I'm going to finish up the season writing up Payne in the Pacific. Uh, and then we're getting on to the, the main training portion of, of the, the year. Uh, in two and a half weeks, we start our first of three FEMA courses. And then it just keeps uh, piling after that. The National Hurricane Conference, the Interdepartmental Hurricane Conference. Uh, the list really goes on and on. Uh, a lot of off-season training uh, and uh, preparing for next year, uh, rolling out new products, um, that type of thing. So, I mean, it certainly sounds like a busy time. And you mentioned, you know, you're writing reports for not only Atlantic Basin storms, but Pacific Basin storms. So as we talk about hurricane hunters, um, you know, they work with both basins. And I think that's something a lot of people tend to forget is that these are not just Atlantic Basin hurricane hunters. There actually are some Pacific storms they intercept, correct? That's right. Uh, any, uh, any storm uh, near, expected to be near hurricane strength, uh, they'll, they'll usually fly it once a day. And in the case of Patricia, uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, they'll uh, they'll they'll do it twice a day. So uh, it just kind of depends. So let's talk a little bit about some of the aircraft they fly and how those missions are tasked as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the airframes they have to choose from between the NOAA Hurricane Hunters and also the Air Force Reserve. And then uh, how are their missions tasked? Like, what do they decide when they go out? Stuff like that. Sure. Well, the the main bird is the C-130. Uh, that is that does the bulk of the reconnaissance uh, aircraft, and, and really each day the on-duty hurricane specialist uh, will talk to Parker, uh, the, the chief of the aerial reconnaissance. Uh, that's who that's our control. That's that's who we talk to 
uh, between us and the 53rd uh, and the NOAA hurricane hunters. Um, we'll decide on what the, what the tasking environment is. Um, if there's nothing going on, we'll be deciding to task invest. Or if, uh, if an active tropical cyclone is, will pass 52 and a half west, we'll try to decide whether, uh, exactly what time do we need the reconnaissance. Uh, how often a day? You will fly uh, once a day for systems that are kind of over the open ocean. It could threaten land, but not directly. Uh, and then, you know, every 12 hours to six hours to continuously, depending on the threat uh, to the United States and the United States territory. Uh, um, and so that's that's the, the, the first one we do. The, the NOAA Hurricane Hunter, um, the, the P3s, um, they have uh, the special capability to have the, uh, the Doppler radar. Uh, that data is integrated into uh, the H4th model, uh, and that is tasked uh, either by us or by the Environmental Modeling Center in, in Washington, D.C., uh, for data on the storm. Uh, but the C-130 does most of the reconnaissance. We're getting the P-3 more involved. The P-3s being, um, uh, usually we'll have two P-3s, but we've only had one on uh, the past season or two because the P-3s have been getting new wings. Um, so we haven't had as many, uh, NOAA, uh, as many NOAA resources as we had. And then for, um, and for uh, when we're interested in the steering around a storm, uh, we'll, uh, we'll have this Gulf Stream, the G4, uh, and we'll task them to fly around, uh, around and drop, uh, drop signs to help measure the atmosphere, um, the steering flows, and the depth of the tropical cyclone, and that will help with our analysis and, and forecasting the models. So you mentioned some of the radar data goes into the HWARF model. How much of the other data that's gathered gets ingested into the models? Uh, well, a lot of the, the drops from, uh, from any of the planes get in. Uh, they use the pressure data. Uh, interestingly, they'll use most of the pressure data. They'll throw the wind data out. Um, it's a lot easier to integrate, uh, to integrate the pressure data uh, into the models uh, than, uh, than the wind data uh, in the inner core. Uh, they're starting to be able to use the, um, the flight level wind data. That's been kind of a data simulation challenge. It was just a talk today uh, about uh, some of the early successes they've had with, the, um, with, the, with integrating the, the 700, the flight level winds um, to get a better idea of the structure uh, from just the regular C-130s. Uh, and you know, hopefully, I mean, there's actually another talk on this uh, detailing the full methodology tomorrow. Hopefully, they'll be able to integrate that for real time uh, for this hurricane season. So, well, you mentioned flight level winds as well. Let's kind of dive into that and dive into some of the data that's gathered. Um, when a drop sign is dropped, give us some of the basic information that's gathered from that. Well, the basic information, of course, you have, you have temperature, you have moisture, um, and pressure, and, and wind. Uh, and those, uh, you know, of course, it's GPS, so we have a really good idea where it is. Um, and, you know, we'll use layer averages to be able to tell uh, how strong the winds are. Uh, the thing about drop on winds is they're instantaneous. Uh, they're not like a, a, you know, they're an accurate measure of the wind, but it's very instantaneous. So you have to average it over a layer uh, to really get at some sort of representativeness uh, to say, if you're trying to estimate the maximum winds are, uh, our best estimate is usually the low, uh, use the measurement of the lower 150 uh, meters, uh, that kind of average, and we'll look at um, we'll look at how it compares to uh, historical data, 
uh, the historical average, and you know, usually it's about 80, 85 percent of the lower 150 uh, meter winds, uh, and that's a good uh, that could be a good estimate. Uh, but again, a drop side only provides it's it's kind of a, a lower bound. Uh, you know, we're interested in the one minute the maximum sustained winds. Uh, you don't really know whether the drop sun hit the radius of maximum winds or not. Uh, so it's just one tool in, in your toolbox. So some people may think that, you know, flight level winds would be more accurate because you've got a continuous stream of information coming in. But I know, from what I understand about flight level winds, they have to be using a few different algorithms to convert them down to the surface. Talk a little bit about that and what the challenges are. Uh, that's true. Um, you know, depending on, you know, the, the People have crunched the numbers and found that about 80% um, of the wind at 850 millibars or about 90% of the wind uh, at 700 millibars is a reasonable representation uh, of a surface wind. Uh, but we can actually, we can do better than that. We can actually measure on what the, uh, what the surface wind actually is with the step frequency microwave radiometer. Uh, it basically measures the, the sea foam, uh, how disturbed it is. Um, and that's really, you know, that's really become our go-to. We've refined the algorithm since we've had it, the, we've had it on the, the planes now for about a decade. Uh, so the algorithm is getting better and better. It's best in the strongest winds. Um, and, and so that's really become, um, that's it, really become our go-to. We'll use it in tandem, um, in, in tandem with the flight level winds. Uh, the SFMR isn't perfect. It doesn't really work very well under tropical storm force or in heavy rain, um, even up to hurricane force. Uh, you know, we have the highest confidence in, in the strongest wind. Uh, but then again, you know, when you do a figure four pattern, you only have the wind directly underneath. Uh, so, you know, there's an undersampling component of, you know, say five to five to ten percent with the SFMR that you have to account for as well, as well as how representative the SFR, SFMR may be. Uh, and that's a, that could be a tricky thing to determine. Now, Eric, also, uh, not only do you drop sons into the atmosphere to get readings down to the surface, but you also drop them into the water as well, correct? Uh, I was seeing some depth uh, for tropical cyclone heat potential forecasting uh, where you were dropping sons and they were getting readings for pretty warm water up to what, 400 or 350 meters, is that correct? Yeah, the, the, um, they have that capability to drop the, uh, the name escapes me at the moment, uh, that can measure the super temperature to some depth uh, we don't generally do it operationally, but a lot of the uh, the NOAA research folk uh, do it to try to get an idea of, uh, say, like warm core eddies in the path. We've gotten a lot better with the remote sensing, uh, the, the, the altimeter data from, from Jason and other sources uh, has really been able to, uh, you know, we've been able to see those warm core eddies and we're starting to get a better representation of the models as well. You mentioned remote sensing, and over the past couple of years, some of the Global Hawk missions have become uh, much more involved in the overall gathering information with the hurricanes. Comment a little bit on that, and where you perhaps see that program going in the future. Uh, boy, if I only had all the money in the world. Um, I, I, I love the Global Hawks because they can really, you know, they can stay up on, uh, they can stay out there for 24 hours. Uh, so they have a, a really, uh, they can fly out there for a long time. Uh, it's still relatively costly at times because there's a full crew associated with it on, on the ground. Uh, but they can reach areas that the, the NOAA or the Air Force would never go to. Um, I, hopefully the funding will be there 
to eventually get um, a, a few global hawk uh, data. I mean, I could see them being used before a tropical cyclone is formed uh, to sample the environment. Um, if the remote sensing isn't, isn't good enough, or say there's a big disagreement in the analyses from the global models, uh, having um, the dropsons, they, they carry, I think, roughly 70 or 80 of the smaller uh, sons that they can drop, um, that the wind and pressure data looks good uh, in most circumstances. You, you get that into the global model data, uh, integrate everything, and I think you're going to actually have better genesis forecasts. Um, in addition, you can fly steering missions, um, the synoptic uh, surveillance missions for a long way. You don't have to just limit it to right offshore of the United States. You could do it uh, much farther to the east. Uh, and it, the possibilities are endless if you, if, uh, if you have the dough. <laughs> um, steering missions, how quickly does that model data get ingested in? So let's say a mission goes out in the middle of the afternoon, which I think is typically kind of when these missions do go out. Does that model data in the 18Z suites, the 0Z suites, uh, when does it go into those global models? It depends when it comes into the system. Um, the cutoff for the GFS, say the 18Z model run, I believe the cutoff is around 21Z uh, for the last uh, data. So any, any drops are included in that. Uh, and then they'll just use the 4D VAR to, uh, to, uh, to integrate through the, the analysis of the 0Z cycle. Uh, and then all the drops from 21Z to 3Z will be integrated into the, the zero zero cycle of the GFS. Uh, other models do it differently. The NAM will use, um, ha has a much earlier cutoff. Um, but then again, the NAM is really good for <laughs> tropical cyclones. But the, the, the European center, the, the cutoff is, is closer to 5Z. Uh, so it just depends. Okay. Um, I want to backtrack just a little bit. You mentioned 52 and a half degrees west. What's the critical number there? Why is that number important for when missions are tasked? Um, well, it used to be 55 degrees west. Um, and then we, uh, we realized we weren't giving enough lead time uh, to the islands. Um, say if the system's moving uh, westward uh, very quickly, say 20 to 25 knots, you're talking about moving 8 to 10 degrees a day. Uh, oftentimes, um, when you're tasking these missions, it's, it's 48 hours in advance. So you need to have some, um, uh, you know, kind of some slop in your, your guess. Uh, and you find all the time that the, the systems of the deep topics will move a little faster than you think they will. Um, so we try to intercept these systems a little earlier uh, and give us um, a, a little larger margin of error. You know, for, um, if you look at Barbados, for instance, it's east of 60. Uh, so you don't have to be off very many degrees, <laughs> very many degrees to have a tropical cyclone into the islands before recon, and we don't want that to happen. Okay. Uh, I know when the, the hunters go down into the Caribbean and stuff, there seems to be one or two little places where they, they happen to hang out. Are there at test airports or are there, you know, TDY spots where they typically go to and base out of? Uh, in, in the Caribbean, the, uh, the Air Force almost exclusively goes to St. Croix. Um, the uh, NOAA goes to St. Croix and also go to Barbados as well. Uh, those, are the, those are the two spots I've seen them go to the most. Not bad spots to go hang out if you're uh, tasked with chasing a hurricane. It could be a lot worse. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's talk about some of the, the information that's been gathered by the hurricane hunters. Can you give us an instance in the past couple of seasons where some of the data gathered by them was 
extremely critical to both forecasting, but also just kind of the dissemination of information? Well, I, I don't, I mean, I couldn't do my job as well without the aircraft data. Uh, it happens, you know, I'd say a, a fair more, a portion of the time you're surprised by the data that you get from the aircraft. You know, the satellite is pretty good, uh, but there's cases, especially when the eye is obscured, you don't really know how strong it be. I've seen, um, I've seen situations where you think, uh, we'll call it the dreaded pinhole eye. You'll see that, you know, maybe you'll see a system and you think it's approaching hurricane strength, uh, but then the aircraft would be in there like, no, it's actually a hurricane. Um, it happens, you don't, you don't exactly, exactly know how strong it is. I've also seen one where you don't really know where it is as well. That become less of an issue with microwave data, but that also still happens as well. Let's talk for a moment, and Shay will segue in your question here in just a second, uh, but you mentioned fixing. How do the hurricane hunters get those low-pressure fixes? And well, Especially in the invest cyclones, <clears throat> trying to figure out where the center of low pressure is. Sure. Well, they, they generally fly uh, for the invest systems at 1,000 to 1,500 feet. Uh, so uh, from that level, you can extrapolate the pressure quite well. You we don't usually use drops then. Um, and you know that the uh, then you, you know the flight level winds and you know the, the SFMR data uh, underneath. Uh, the, the pressure data is is very good uh, for tropical storms. They generally go up to uh, 850 millibars or 5,000 feet, um, and then that's when they'll usually start to drop the sons. Uh, there's the uh, the relationship in the atmosphere. If you know the the height and the temperature, um, uh, then you can generally uh, estimate the, the pressure uh, fairly well. You'll see as the extrapolation, uh, they can do that very quickly on board uh, in the temperature and dew point and height data uh, that they get you know, every, every second. Uh, and that's how they get the, uh, sometimes you'll see in the fixes, you'll see you know, 990 extrapolated. Um, it, that's when say the, the drops failed or uh, or it's from a, a very low level. Right. Well, that was, um, you mentioned something about satellites a little bit ago. That's a good segue into a question I had for you. Now, we had the Cygnus launch, which uh, for our viewers, Cygnus was um, basically a satellite, uh, eight separate satellite constellation that's going is in orbit around our planet right now. So, and on any given spot over the tropics, another satellite moves into position about every 12 minutes to get a snapshot what's going on over that area that uh, stands for cyclone global navigation satellite system uh, so tell tell us a little bit about that and how it's going to tie into what you as hurricane hunters do well um, you know there's been some great promise in, in how how much uh, Cygnus may help us uh, for this first year it's not um, it's not available operational uh, it's not available in in real time uh, we expect that data will eventually help us. I'm not exactly sure on what, when we expect it to be operationally, um, operationally uh, integrated into the model suite. That's a really good question. I haven't, I haven't gotten a good answer on that. I think, uh, I think they want to get a year's worth of actual data, compare it versus the simulated, the Aussies, uh, as you say, see how well it actually uh, helps. I mean, if, if it does what it, it says it's going to do, uh, the surface wind data with a return of about an, uh, uh, every 90 minutes is, is what I uh, what I hear. 
uh, you know, that could be a real revolution. But I haven't seen, um, I haven't seen the, the work that, that just, I mean, there's a lot of promise, but I haven't seen it uh, just yet to fill up to that. And that's really what 2017 is for. I don't know if, they, if uh, by 2018 or 2019 they would actually have that capability. Uh, Brian McNulty would know. Uh, but, right. but I, yeah, I was, I was thinking about um, asking him as well at some point. But uh, I'm assuming that's sort of the case for the new Goes R, which is Goes 16 now, uh, with them probably not making some of their operational um, usage by the hurricane season. Is that correct? I expect it to be we should have, as far as I know, uh, uh, as far as I know, the first images will be released this month. Uh, and um, we should have we should have it during the testing phase during hurricane season. I don't know how much the rest of the world will have it, uh, but I know we'll have the direct readout. I'm, I'm excited by it. I mean, that was really uh, as exciting as it uh, – to be with the, the Gozar launch and, you know, just the idea of having five or seven and a half minute uh, global visible IR data. Now, that's, that's flat out exciting. I don't think we've fully realized how we're going to use all that, uh, all that data. I mean, I know that uh, for a system, is the system closed? Is it not closed? What should I do with the system? Uh, I know that's going to help really in sunrise and sunset situations. Uh, you have a lot more data a lot faster. And we have Tim Smith coming on, uh, I believe, in a couple weeks, coming up in February, who can perhaps comment a lot more on that. He's going to be some of the first people in the world to see some of the images coming back from Gozar. So February 16th is when he'll be joining us to talk a little bit about that. So uh, let's um, segue just a little bit here since we've kind of gone down this road talking about products and new things that are coming out. Uh, you know, we had that weather conference down in Breckenridge has been going on. and some of the new maps that the Hurricane Center is going to be putting out coming up in 2017 and also a few different options they have. Uh, one of them that I thought was really interesting was the discussion of issuing watches and warnings on systems that haven't fully formed yet. And we had perhaps that situation occur earlier this year with a few invest cyclones. Comment a little bit on that, Eric, if you can, and uh, how valuable that may be to you as a forecaster. Uh, well, we hope it's going to be a really, it's something, we hope it's going to be a good, uh, increase in service because if you look at all the other big hazards, um, usually there's watches and warnings issued before they form. Snowstorms, you put watches and warnings a long time beforehand. Uh, and we think that uh, the models and us, have, we, we've gotten better uh, enough to predict the, the formations before it happens. And um, it, it's something I'm excited about because we, we should have the ability to put out the, um, the regular advisory a package on a potential tropical cyclone. Uh, there'll probably be a few kinks to, to work out as we first uh, do it, uh, but we've been testing it in-house for, for several years, uh, thinking about what we would do uh, if we're going to issue this uh, watch the morning, and so far we're pretty pleased with the results, so uh, that's one uh, that's one thing I'm, I'm excited about. You know, it seems like the past couple of years has really been a revolutionary time period for the Hurricane Center. There's lots of new products coming out. You got the storm surge watches and warnings, which we talked about. Um, we got the new maps coming out. I know you guys are working in-house in some longer-term forecast stuff where you'd be going out longer than five days. Uh, anything else that's kind of in the works with the Hurricane Center, especially for this year? One other uh, experimental product that um, 
I'm not sure Rick debuted it, but I know he showed it, um, was the uh, experimental um, reasonable earliest time, time of arrival graphic. Uh, that's a pretty, uh, that's expected to be like an experimental or prototype graphic uh, this season uh, that will have, um, you know, kind of a line on, on when the, the earliest you can expect the tropical storm uh, force winds. Uh, that's something that a lot of the partners have been uh, interested in. Um, the, I'm, I'm honestly not sure when, when the day six and day seven uh, forecast will come uh, to fruition. If you look, historically, we've gained about a day, um, a day every decade in skill. Uh, you know, our, our day five forecasts are as good as our day three forecast roughly a decade ago. Uh, I don't know how long that will continue, but it would suggest that relatively soon we'll be able to issue uh, a day six and day seven forecast. The question is, what do you want to focus your resources on? Uh, do you want to make the early part of the forecast better? Uh, a lot of, there's a lot of ways for your day six and day seven forecast to fail. Um, like a good case was uh, last year with the, with the tropical cyclone. Gosh, the name escapes me. That was, uh, it would be two years ago now. Um, that was supposed to come up uh, near Florida, uh, but it dissipated in, in, instead. It's supposed to be near hurricane strength. Erica, perhaps. Erica, yeah. And if you have to put out day six and day seven forecast for Erica systems, you're going to lose a lot of uh, credibility. Our, you know, our, gen our genesis and intensity forecasts aren't quite so good at day six and day seven. Um, so we're going to stay with five days, uh, five days for a while, uh, and hopefully. Uh, Keep making products that are useful. Uh, I mean, at the time of arrival should be uh, useful. I know the five-day uh, Genesis uh, graphics have been extremely well received for the, for the tropical weather outlook. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think a big kudos to you guys at the Hurricane Center because when we looked at the overall average error in forecasting, you know, your official forecast was the best one out there when it comes to comparing it to all the models and other stuff, some of the graphics that I saw. So, you know, like we always say, the, the Hurricane Hunter forecast is always perhaps the best forecast to go to uh, when it comes to overall errors that are out there. So, Well, I'm, I'm, happy, that, uh, I'm happy that you think so and, and some of your colleagues think so because I think it's a, uh, uh, you know, we work hard to get the best possible forecast. I mean, we, you know, develop in-house tools. I mean, one thing that we've developed um, uh, as part of for, for HFIP is the, um, the HFIP corrected consensus model, uh, and that uses a lot of the Florida State Super Ensemble, uh, but we put in as much of the, the old reruns, and we have control over, um, you know, it's basically a corrected ensemble technique that will take into account of the biases of the model, um, and we're able to, you know, squeeze out some additional percent uh, for both the track and intensity forecast, uh, and that's uh, that model's been quite good. Um, if you look at the 2016 verification, one of the surprises was the UK Met model. Uh, and the UK Met Ensemble actually did uh, much better. Um, we've done some studies of that over the past year or two now. Uh, and I noticed that uh, it can have very good forecasts, but it can have very bad forecasts as well. Its standard deviation can be a lot uh, higher, so something to watch. So we you know, study this in the off-season. You'll see that usually we'll put the verification report out in spring uh, for uh, what model uh, what model did the best. Um, so we just try to 
mean, we try to put the best possible forecast. I mean, it's, I'm always, I always laugh when emergency manager or just someone is just like, well, so what do you think it's really going to do? Well, there's a forecast right there. That's what we think it's really going to do. That's our best guess. And if you look at the errors, I mean, from, I mean, the, in the Pacific this year, the 120 hour error was like a hundred nautical miles. It's just, it was some staggeringly low number in the Eastern Pacific. Now the Atlantic was, was higher, but from 24 to 96 hours, we set record low scale and hopefully the models would keep advancing. I mean, there will be some point where kind of, you know, asymptotically your, your errors can only be so low. Um, but we've blown through most of those records. So I'm interested to see where the, uh, where it actually settles on. I know we're, I know we're kind of segueing away from what we're talking about. Talking about but, uh, you know, hurricanes and everything in general, I think, interests almost everyone on this panel. Let's talk for a moment um, about some of the models. I know we have the H-Wharf model, but it's a dedicated hurricane model. But it seems like some of the runs always go bonkers, and it always tries to blow up the storm into category three, four, five. Is there a reason for that? Is it a noted bias in the model? Yeah, the, the early runs of the HR, especially before it becomes a tropical cyclone, uh, have a pretty well documented high bias. Um, it, it doesn't always work, but the bias is there. Um, uh, I think I probably tweeted out a graphic for Hermine that showed, in fact, I know I did, that showed a, a Category 4 hurricane in the northeastern Gulf with a big, a big X over it. And like, yeah, don't keep tweeting out that silly thing because it's a... Um, it's just not realistic, um, but that's that's the the, the benefit and the and, and the cost of having a very open information environment. Uh, but the HWARF has been some of our best intensity guidance. You know, in, in many respects, the HWARF is better than the old standby statistical uh, LGEM and, and V-SHIP now. Uh, but it certainly has its problems. We haven't licked the intensity problem. We're getting a little bit better. We you can't really honestly say we're no better than we used to be. We are, uh, but it's just just a little bit. <laughs> One thing that I also ran into a lot, especially when Matthew was making its way at the Florida coastline, was meteorologists who were trying to jump on the H triple R model and use that uh, almost operationally in hurricane forecasting. Give us some words of advice on that and why that may be a good or a bad idea. Yeah, it's a bad idea. Uh, it's a unfortunately, you know, we look at some of the the verification. Um, I only have seen Hermine, but Hermine, if you look at the, the Her model, it was supposed to be off the mouth of the Mississippi River. Uh, not, and of course, we know it hit Florida, not you know, southeast Louisiana. So um, I've seen it do some interesting things with the inner core of a hurricane, um, but it's not well-tuned for that. I mean, it's kind of the pipe dream to have a model which can handle weather, <laughs> not one just for hurricanes and one just for tornadoes and we haven't quite licked that yet. That problem is very difficult uh, to solve. But the her, you know, I, I would treat it like the man. I would, it's kind of entertaining at times, but it's not very useful for, uh, it's not very useful yet. I thought that was some of the craziest graphics I saw tweeted when the storm was getting close and people were tweeting out the her like, just FYI, you know, this is an option out there that one of the models is throwing out. It's like, okay, well, it's also an option the storm dies and dissipates, but that probably isn't going to happen tonight either. So, uh, all yeah, right. The, you know, the HWARF actually had a lot of the uh, concentric eyewall uh, eye cycle that Matthew actually went through. Um, you know, years ago, they didn't have any of that. So just to see that 
Uh, it, at least had the structure right. Maybe it had it right for the wrong reasons, but it definitely had a concentric eye roll structure. Uh, some of the simulated radar from the h was was interesting. Um, it was interesting. <laughs> when the hurricane hunters go into a system and they're, they're noting the eye wall, why is that critical in is it eye wall replacement cycles? Is it forecasting? Why are they noting that? Well, they can see it, and we really can't. Um, right now, the uh, they don't have the capability to transmit images back. Um, so they can see the you know the nose radar, uh, but we can't. Um, and so the character of the eye wall, um, something I look forward to is when that when a hurricane hunter starts to report that an eye wall is formed. Um, you know, if you see the pressure falling, you know, an eye wall is starting to form and the pressure's in like the 980s, you're like, ooh, that's, that's not a good sign. Uh, because that's, you know, that's a sign that could be really be starting to go. Um, uh, you know, when that eye wall forms is something I will certainly look at. It's very important information. Um, one day, I think the, the Air Force will have the internet aboard their plane uh, to be able to send, uh, transmit pictures. We can see it after the fact. Uh, hopefully that will cause another, uh, not a revolution, but it, if the forecasters can see the radar in real time, um, it, it's a very useful tool to have, and hopefully we can uh, find a way to really, really use that. Are you guys able to get the images from the P3 back in real time? Um, yes. Uh, we can we can see that in real time. In fact, the whole world can see those in real time. Uh, on Google Earth, I've seen those uh, all the time. You can really see um, how quickly it changes, and you know, those are those are you know the P3 has a. I think they <laughs> they had like a forty eight hundred baud modem. I know they upgraded to like. Well, I can't even remember the number. Something something I used in college, but uh, but they at least have the capability. It's not go go in flight or something like that with a uh, no, not even that. Delta. Not even that good. <laughs> All right, uh, Shay, you had a question. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of folks out there that they understand the concept of hurricane hunting. Uh, I did want to ask this question on the show because I, I think a lot of individuals think that you know the, the planes fly over the system, they don't fly down into it, and, and I don't think what a lot of folks understand is that they fly directly down into the eye wall inside the eye and up around uh, the system, all around the system. It's not just your, your figure four over the top. I mean, you're dropping sons, but uh, talk a little bit about exactly what, what type of pattern they fly into the system. And is there ever any time that they have to pull out because the storm is too strong? Um, you know, they, they certainly, you know, when they, uh, they have a well-documented procedure uh, when they fly through. I mean, they, they don't fly over it. They fly through it. Um, they, there may not be much of it at the early stages, but you know, when the stronger hurricanes, hurricanes there's definitely something there. Um, and so, you know, they, you know, they learn to, to fly in at 10,000 feet, I believe, because it's below the freezing level. Um, you don't really want to be involved with the super cool droplets and that kind of thing in, in hurricanes. You don't want it to be too cold. Um, uh, and then you know that it, uh, only in the very strong, you know, they fly at a constant pressure level. Uh, so, uh, so as they go down, they fly at 700 millibars, and if the pressure goes down, you know, they'll actually be going slightly downward uh, as they penetrate the eye wall. They can kind of dive in a way, um, and then uh, pull back out. Um, 
but they have a well and a long list of, uh, of things to do and not to do that they've known over the years to be safety. I mean, they've been a long time, uh, at least since, since Janet, if I'm not mistaken, that they've uh, lost anyone. Uh, they, they used to fly at very low levels um, for very strong hurricanes, and they've, uh, they, they've learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, but that we can't, we couldn't really do, uh, you know, measure the winds uh, any other way right now. There's some possibilities. The HIRAD uh, will be able to measure the, the surface winds. Uh, it's an, an instrument like the SFMR, but it's a, a much bigger swath um, that can fly over it. And maybe you don't necessarily have to get into the strongest winds, uh, but we're a long ways uh, uh, from using that. Um, yeah, it, it's critical data. Yeah, I can imagine how bumpy those trips could get. Uh, I've read stories about how some of the hurricane hunters, boy, they, they got uh, bounced around up there, so, you know, several hundred feet, maybe up to a thousand foot drop all at one time. And, and from a scientific standpoint, from in particular mesovortices or what are called vortical swirls inside of the eyewall, when the eyewall actually becomes sort of a cross, you get a crossover from one side to the other. Is that something we, we don't see that very often in the Atlantic? You see those with super typhoons, but tell us a little bit about how they handle that kind of a situation. Well, I think you know they'll see the uh, they can definitely see you know they're not going to fly into a hook echo. <laughs> they they they're definitely wise up about that. Uh, you saw with Otto uh, was a good case of a meso vortex. Uh, when I left when I left a shift on Otto at you know four o'clock in the afternoon, there was very you know. It's just below hurricane strength. Uh, and then in the next mission, they had a strong mesovortex developed with a big hook uh, feature. Um, they eventually measured you know, 100 knots or something very close to it at flight level. Um, so the mesovortices happen, and they know uh, they try to avoid those uh, when they can. Um, it's often can be part of the development process of a tropical cyclone. So what is the mesovortex? What is the tropical cyclone? That could be a very difficult thing to untangle. Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard that I've heard people that I have never flown into one. One day I will. Unfortunately, that anytime there's a good chance to fly into a hurricane, uh, usually I'm working, <laughs> so I need the time to be able to weigh. Uh, but, but I haven't had it anyway. I, I've heard him talk about you know that guy was a two bagger, that guy was an eight bagger. So they, obviously they're very bumpy. A bit bumpy flights that, you know, I'd like to go, but, you know, I, I have a pretty soft stomach, so it might be kind of rough. Back to you, Ricky. All righty. Let's talk about one last question, and I'll give our rest of our panel members time to think of any they may have as we're getting close to uh, 9 o'clock. But we notice a lot of times the hurricane hunters moving into an area that's close to land. They don't fly over land. Is there a, a main reason for that? Um. No, they generally, you know, it's more turbulent over land, especially in the mountainous region. Um, they will fly all the time over the United States, um, but uh, they generally don't have the uh, the overflight clearance, uh, and they'll generally fly up to the coast. Uh, that's generally their uh, their plan for. It's either bumpy or, um, you know, in the Caribbean you have five thousand foot mountains, and you don't really want to. Uh, you know, if you're flying at 5,000 feet, you don't want to find a 5,000 foot mountain in your way. So they, this, uh, they avoid landed almost any chance they can. 
Any stories from this year of the Hurricane Hunters that, that resonate in your mind or a moment when they were really useful this year? Well, I was working when Matthew became a Category 5. Uh, that was a surprise. Uh, you know, you can see that the satellite presentation is getting a lot better, but, you know, the data that night that supported the Category 5 uh, was, you know, very useful and, and very surprising. Uh, that, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, it surprised everyone. I mean, if you remember 24 hours beforehand, it was basically an open circulation. So the, the amount of rapid intensification that happens, I mean, eventually it caught, the satellite signal caught up to it, but I think we provided some... Uh, a lot of lead time uh, in knowing how strong it would be then. And of course, Matthew uh, ended up moving on and having a big impact here in the Carolinas and everything uh, that transpired with that. So certainly a remarkable storm uh, for the 2016 season. Well, since we have you, what do you think was the biggest storm of the 2016 season in any basin? We can open it up across all basins. Well, I mean, there's, of course, there's some Western Pacific monsters um, but, you know, Matthew was the storm of the year. Uh, it, it, from uh, the unfortunate uh, deaths in the Dominican Republic and Haiti uh, to the effects in the Bahamas and the United States, I haven't seen the final, uh, the final damage numbers, but I imagine it, it'd be a multi-billion dollar uh, uh, storm. Uh, you know, and really, you know, the, if you went back and looked in, in some of the presentations I've given in the offseason, if you look at the guidance we had before Matthew went through its rapid intensification, a few of the models intensified at 10 knots. Um, you know, roughly 10 knots when it eventually intensified, I don't know, 70 knots. <laughs> it's just a, a disaster. It's just a terrible forecast. It's just something we learned from. I think we, we found a little, you know, a little a problem there with the H4 that they're going to work on in the offseason, hopefully try to get that fixed we had uh of course matthew's forecast as it near florida was was a difficult one and it ended up staying offshore uh comment on that a little bit any of the reasons that you guys think that happened or was there just uh, just enough steering flow yeah it was just enough i mean i i was you know the question i had in in at my house is put the shutters up or not put the shutters up you know and i really yeah struggle with the decision and uh uh, and it's a challenging thing because it's I these big, heavy steel shutters, and I didn't want any part of it. Um, but after, you know, after I saw it kind of take that big wobble to the right, uh, which unfortunately hit Grand Bahama uh, pretty hard, um, but, uh, you know, then I felt more confident about it. But if not for that big wobble, uh, I think the Palm Beaches and the Treasure Coast uh, would have been hit a lot harder. And Eric, uh, during your time at the uh, National Hurricane Center, is there like one storm that's really memorable and uh, memorable to you? Um, is there one storm? There's a lot of storms. But <laughs> I'm sure. Two moments. I'll share two moments. Uh, the, the first is is Hurricane Wilma, uh, and somebody in Lixie and Avila calling me in the middle of the night, and I can't. He, he, all he said was. Eric, it's 885 or something like that. And, and it was a crazy, Wilma was a crazy event and it, below Gilbert. Um, but getting called in the middle of the night for, for that was pretty spectacular. Patricia as well was, was amazing, but that one doesn't quite have the significance. 
Um, but the storm is Katrina. That is the storm of record. I was working during landfall uh, of Katrina and, you know, figuring out with Max Mayfield and where to declare the landfall and, uh, you know, looking at the Atlas in those days. And even had Google Maps. So you're looking at the Atlas uh, and, uh, you know, where, where does it make landfall? And you know, talking to my family in, in the New Orleans area. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, it just, you know, the wind was bad, but it seemed to have let up. And, and you know, if people, people may have forgotten that at first people thought that, you know, New Orleans got lucky. Uh, but the communication, even, you know, 12, 12 years ago now, uh, wasn't as, wasn't as everyone wasn't as connected. And uh, it became clear very quickly that uh, they were not lucky and the water kept rising and the, the levee breach. Um, Katrina is is the storm of record. I can't believe it was twelve years ago for Katrina. That's 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 amazing. Just how time flies. From a from a forecaster standpoint, you may have this worse than anyone, or maybe you've conquered it. How do you get sleep when there's a major hurricane sitting right off the uh, coastline? Oh, I definitely didn't sleep a whole lot in Georgia. I was definitely, uh, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, we haven't. We haven't had that many threats I mean, we've, since since Wilma. I mean, uh, you had uh, uh, you know the, the next hurricane. Gosh, it hit Florida. I mean, it was was hurting. I mean, it's been a while since I've had a, a hurricane near me. And Ike, of course, was a uh, a big monster in Sandy. But having it right on top of you is a different experience. We haven't had a lot of those uh, the Hugos or the Andrews or the big monster systems that will keep you up more at night. We, we've been very fortunate, but Matthew certainly, certainly registered for me. <laughs> okay. Uh, we could talk tropics all night, but it's getting close to nine o'clock. So tell people how they can get in contact with you if they would like to do this. So. Sure. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Eric Blake 12. Um, I'm, I'm fairly active. Uh, I, I don't just do hurricanes in the off season. I, I love the, the winter weather. Uh, I, it, as I like to say in Miami, if it's not, if you don't get the cold between October and, and April, you're not going to get it. So when you, you know, the past two Decembers in Miami were the first and second warmest on record, uh, just terrible. Uh, you know, you might as well live in the deep tropics if you don't have any winter. Um, but I like the winter weather, the, the snow. I was enjoying you guys's. Uh, snow and the, the I have to say I, I took a little Schadenfreude about the, the Raleigh bust and the poor Atlanta freezing rain. I mean, I'm originally I went to school in northeastern Louisiana at Monroe, the University of Louisiana Monroe, uh, and I, I have suffered through southern storms. There was a time when they were basically good luck. They're still hard, but at least it's they're getting better and better. It's still hard. It's not like and there was a time when freaking southern snow was like predicting fog. Uh, but now it's gotten – the models have gotten better. But as you, as you guys know, it's, it's – uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, they're not perfect. I have to laugh because you mentioned uh, winter in Florida, and there were wind, wind, wind chill warnings in effect because it was going to feel, <laughs> not be, feel like 34 in parts of Florida. It, our, my wind chill, uh, I, I think, got in the upper 30s on Sunday morning. That was a cold morning because we – that's a cold when, – when your average low for the month was, like, I don't know, 70, 68, upper, 
uh, upper 30s wind chill feels really cold. And it was just seven years ago <laughs> we had the flurries in Western Broward in January, uh-huh. January 2010. It can get cold in Florida. Yeah, I saw T-shirts. Uh, I survived winter. I've already seen the T-shirts out. Three whole days. Huh? For comparison, it was negative one on the top of Rome Mountain when I was up there the other day with a wind chill of way colder than I care to figure out. So There's lots of room in Florida. Yeah, well, hey. As long as we don't go underwater from, you know, rising sea level, it would be great. That's a whole other topic for a whole other night, which uh, – you probably have some influence impact on too. So, all right, Scotty, I will toss it back to you uh, for to wrap up everything. All right, thanks, Ricky and Eric. You were tell, telling us, I think you said you were doing um, kind of the uh, final stuff on Tropical Storm Julia. It's the first time that I can remember that we've seen a tropical system develop over land. Um, any short comments about about Julia and and what you found out so far before we close off? Well, Julia was a very difficult system and I was working during the day Julia and, and you know part of the reason it made it so difficult um, you know, it had some characteristics of tropical cyclones but they don't generally fall over land but if you remember Florida a lot of Florida is not land There's a lot of water and it never really left the coast more than 10 or 15 miles so and you know the Everglades in South Florida so a good portion of that circulation was over water or very swampy land um, and so it's it was just a very surprising storm. I mean, it, it wasn't exactly a high, uh, high impact event, but it was surprising. And then it was extremely annoying off the uh, east coast of uh, the Carolinas. It, it, the east coast of the Carolinas actually had they had quite a number of. It was very, very busy. I mean, you even had the non-tropical effects: the uh, the north side of you know the backside, the sound side flooding in the outer banks with Hermine and and Matthew. You had a lot of interesting. Post-tropical. Now, that's part of the season that a lot of people might have missed was kind of the the sound side flooding that they had in the Outer Banks from from those two events. I was going to say, I think Shea experienced like five or six named storms this year. Man, I tell you, at least three or four of them just would never go away, and Julia was one of them. She, it just it just kept meandering down in the south. It was trapped an undulating boundary. Just uh, just wouldn't go anywhere. I mean, Southeast North Carolina really got it the worst. But in fact, I've if I remember, Eric, the NHC map for the total storms for the year, the track guidance actually has a separate window in the product itself that zeroes in on the southeast because of all the activity. Yeah, we had a lot of storms that go right right over. Yeah, if you go to the – I don't know if you have the map, but that's why you're bringing it up. But if, if you actually show um, – if you show the, the, the map, it does have – it has an inset over the Carolinas. You also had that annoying tropical depression 8. I think that was the number of it that I was writing on, and yeah, you know, oh, it's going to form a storm, form a storm, and eventually I just gave up the ghost because it just didn't. Jeez, I'd say we had like I think we had about three landfalls from you know uh, three or uh, one close, but that was Matthew, very close enough. I mean, you know, we just we had a lot this year. I do yeah. want to I do want to say we had Michael Lowry on a, a few weeks back, and since you are more closely uh, with the National Hurricane Center. I would like to propose to you that we uh, do away with Invest 99L. We, we don't want to hear that anymore. We just need to come up with a different number. We want to retire Invest 99L. <laughs> well, everyone's got their personal investment. Like, uh, 99L is just the one that people remember uh, this. There was a 93L that was fairly notorious, but the Invest numbers have become, uh, ever since the Weather Channel started putting them on the air, 
Uh, they've really become, uh, yeah, they've really, people are like, what's an invest? And <laughs> what's this number? And uh, yeah, I mean, hey, maybe one day we'll put the Product Builder <laughs> Outlook as, as a number. Who knows what we'll do. <laughs> All right, well, Eric, we really do appreciate you coming on tonight and I look forward to maybe having you on uh, further on down the, the road here um, this year, maybe as we uh, come into the tropical season, maybe kind of pick your brain and see what uh, you may think be down the down the pipeline for us here in the, in the East Coast. We'll area. see what happens. We already have some models with El Nino, some, some models neutral. I, I'm surprised so many have El Nino coming up this winter after a big strong one just two years ago, but you never know. That's it. Well, guys, uh, let's uh, pop up the schedule for next a couple of weeks. Let me uh, get that for you. All right. <laughs> i got to love to share the screen thing. So uh, next week, I hope you guys can see this. January 18th, we have Women in Weather, uh, Sarah Fortner uh, from NBC Charlotte and Kelly Dubeck from Augusta, Georgia. We're also trying to uh, find out uh, or trying to find a third guest that we're trying to work on. So can't promise that yet, but we do have Sarah and Kelly coming on next week. And then the week after that, January 25th, we have Sunset Weather coming on. Uh, very happy to have those guys come in and kind of talk about their product and uh, talk about how you guys can – the public can uh, get a good sunset or sunrise forecast and take some amazing pictures. So that's uh, how we wrap up at the end of January. And as you can see, February is uh, almost booked. And then as we go into March, I'm going to bring Shay into this because Shay's kept up with it a little bit more than I have because uh, dealing with some wintry weather. But Shay, uh, it seems like uh, in March we're going to be doing some podcasts with other weather podcast guys, right? Yeah, apparently there's been a, a coalition – uh, effort. And, uh, the guy's name is Phil. I, I can't uh, remember his last name off the bat, but he's asked Johnson. us to be a part. Phil Johnson, that's right. Uh, asked us to be a part of Podcast uh, Awareness Month, um, National Podcast Awareness Month. I think I think you may change that name to something else. So that's not quite set in stone. We're all kind of talking about it right now, but it looks like the month of March is going to be a big one for like Weather Brains for us, for all different groups and shows that come on. And we're all going to we'll pro probably do some some cross promoting with each other and come on each other's shows and, and just sort of talk about severe weather and weather awareness in general. Uh, we do have March 15th, right in the middle of the month for us, uh, which would be the Ides of March, of course. And that's John Jensenius coming on to talk about lightning. He's a lightning expert with Noah. So we're really excited to have him back on February 8th on the schedule. We were talking about flooding. I've got Doug Marcy from NOAA uh, Coastal Management Service. He's, he's the hazard specialist. He, We'll probably be filling that slot for us. That would be another great show to supplement what we've talked about tonight as well. It is. And I, I think, James, are you still around? Maybe. James is starting. Oh, he is. James is kind of starting a new thing with our website as well, how uh, folks can keep up with this throughout the week. So, James, you want to kind of promote that side? I mean, I know you've been at work um, over the past couple of weeks really sprucing up everything. Yeah, I think we kind of rolled out of 2016 with a soft launch. I think this may be the official launch moment of uh, carolinaweathergroup.com. Uh, you can check it out on your computer. You can check it out on your mobile device. So we have show recaps and previews, and uh, it's the all-day, everyday knowledge base that you come to expect from our YouTube show and our podcast, but you can now take it with you uh, beyond just Wednesdays. So, uh, again, it's show previews. 
It's insights into weather. It's live coverage like we had this past weekend of the snow event. So check us out, carolinaweathergroup.com, and let us know what you think. Sounds good. And we have dogs everywhere, so everybody want to introduce their dogs before we... Uh... The snow has gone to the dogs. <laughs> Go ahead, Ricky. Introduce us to Forrest, And Eric has two dogs as well he's got on. Yeah, this is this is Butter, at Miami Butter. <laughs> this is Mo. Aww. He wanted to come say hi. I just, I just woke him up from a nap, so he's very confused. Well, Forrest doesn't like he picked up, so he's like, why the heck are you picking me up? <laughs> he's only 35 pounds, so. And this is Hank, or at Miami Hankster. Every now and again, see their, they have their own Twitter followers. I think uh, every now and again, people are like, why aren't you tweeting about your dogs more? Hey, my dog is famous in my television market, too. I think people love him more than I think they love me. So. All right, guys. Well, thanks for uh, watching tonight. Make sure to uh, join us next week as we uh, have a few uh, ladies uh, on the show with uh, Kelly uh, Dubeck and um, Sarah Fortner. And we hope to uh, hope to see you next week. As always, if you have any suggestions or anything like that, why James is getting a kiss from his dog, <laughs> uh, feel free to uh, send them to us via Twitter or our Facebook page. Always uh, take in uh, some suggestions on uh, topics uh, that we can talk about or uh, maybe you have something you want to talk about uh, on the show. So just get in touch with us and we can get everything ironed out. So for everyone here at the Carolina Weather Group, we hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week.